0: Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast, and I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. So folks, today this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, which is a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for the first responders needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. Take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEhealth.com. That's FHEhealth.com. And so today we have a guest that was with us early on. I believe it was our first episode. I believe so. And that is Lily. And she's back here Uh, talking to us about family programs again, but not necessarily family programs, although we might touch on that. But we want to talk about uh, families and reactions to their loved ones that are suffering from addiction and sort of the behaviors that fall into that and really give you just sort of an insight as to what to expect and maybe some recommendations as to how you can handle your loved one's addiction. And what's prompting this is, we're getting lots of feedback from people, calls, emails about people that want to know what they can do with their loved one. And uh, I have people that have been trying to get into recovery for a number of years and that continually relapse, and it just frustrates the heck out of their, their loved ones. And you know, people get to their wits end, and they don't know what to do. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. Because folks, I've talked about this many, many times before. That addiction is a progressive disease. It is deadly. It gets worse over a period of time. It never, ever gets better. There are no exceptions to that rule. And this is the disease that really drives everyone that you love, if you're the one that's suffering from it, away from you to the point where you need people the most. That's when you have the fewest number of people around you because this is the disease that causes you to engage in behaviors that no one likes. And sometimes it's illegal behavior. Sometimes it's just bad behavior or it's irresponsibility. And by the time you get to your end, everybody is just frustrated with you and they want to leave. And And there's a number of listeners that have been calling in saying that that's exactly the situation that they were in and they want to know you know what should they do so welcome Lily again to the
1: program thanks mike thanks for having me okay
0: so uh you heard the intro there and maybe just talk about that a little bit because I know in your situation that's exactly what happened and you were frustrated you didn't know what to do uh, a lot of mistakes were made on on your part at least i think that's how you look at it but when I say mistakes, they were things that you didn't know that you were doing wrong. We all learn as we go. There's no rules booklet or there's no manual on how to handle those things. But tell us about some of the things that you learned over the, over the years, and what can you tell our listeners that are suffering from this right now?
1: Thanks, Mike. So I think that um, as I was in your episode one, and I had talked about that I went to Al-Anon when the kids, um, when my kids were four and seven, and Things have got, had gotten so bad between my husband and I that I had tried everything in my power based on what I knew in order to be able to get him into recovery. And nothing I was doing was working, and so I was very, very frustrated. So that's when I stumbled across Al-Anon, started going to meetings, and then I discovered that there were people like-minded like me that were going through similar things, and they were having also issues either, number one, they had left their addict or their alcoholic already, or they were going through similar things like I was, um, or, and some people were getting, you know, they were much better. So that was a meeting that I went to. There were like 20 plus people, and all these people are laughing, and I certainly wasn't in the mood to be uh, laughing. So to answer your question, you know, as far as what do you do when you're at your wit's end, and what were some things that, when I look back in time, Um, maybe some things that I, I'm not necessarily proud of, um, I would think that, you know, it's easier to say when I look back in time thinking that, you know, I would go to a meeting and then I would feel like my bag was full, like I had all these tools that I could apply. But then when I would get into a situation with my husband and he would trigger me, um. In a negative way. And then I would react. It's like all the tools just went out the window. And then I would react angry. Frustrated. Blaming. Angry. Threatening to leave. Take the kids. Um, I just. It was so frustrating because. While I wanted him to be well. And because I felt he wasn't choosing to be well. um, You know I felt that. You know it was almost like a personal attack. You know, I know that you had your other episodes about choice versus disease, mm-hmm. or and we, moral issue or, versus or, oh, disease, right? M- yes. Moral, uh-huh. right? And so the the idea being that an addict or an alcoholic doesn't choose to to have the disease, but once they have the disease, they do make a choice whether or not they get better or not. Mm-hmm. And that was my frustrating point. I think that at a point when my husband's addiction got really bad, I think he recognized he had he had the disease. But he still wasn't making the choice to get long-term sobriety. And that's what frustrated me was, okay, you know you're sick, but why aren't you doing everything you possibly can to get better? And um, I know you and I were talking about a little bit earlier about why is that? Why why doesn't the alcoholic or the addict get help when, they, when confronted with it? Especially if they've gone to treatment and they've, you know, gone to detox and, and they're still not doing everything possible in order to get better.
0: So did you think that your loved one was loved one was doing this on purpose?
1: Sometimes I did, I did. Mm-hmm. And so I would get so frustrated uh, because he wouldn't be getting the help that he needed. And, um, and I would lots of times, even though I knew because of Al-Anon, they would say, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it. Um, you can't control it, but you can contribute to it. And so I was doing my damnedest to try to not contribute to it. But even when I got to the point where I felt I wasn't, even though I would have my own little relapses of getting triggered and, and making things somewhat worse, um, he still wasn't getting better. And so it was difficult to continue to stay in the relationship. And um, and so I started having these thoughts that I was going to start taking necessary steps to leave him mm-hmm. uh, because I, I didn't think that he would get better.
0: So do you have a different understanding of that now about his motivations? Well, I think, What do you think was really going on? Was it really a matter of he didn't love you and he didn't love the kids? Or was it truly the disease had taken over?
1: I think looking back on it, knowing you know that he struggled for so many years, I think that I underestimated the power of this disease.
0: It is powerful.
1: And that, you know, it's not just a willpower and, you know, he could just will it away. You know, um, I now know that, you know, they always say in the big book that acceptance is the answer. That when you accept that it's a disease and that you have no control over it and that the answer is truly to accept it. And then by that acceptance, it, I, I believe that means now is you cannot tackle this disease on your own. Mm-hmm. You need family. You need a support network. If you're involved in AA, you're you know you're entrenched with um, sponsors and other people in the program, and um, and if you if you can if you haven't lost your family members by then, um, if they're willing to stick by you, um, they are a strong network that can help you, but with the recognition with the recognition that it's not going to be easy. Um, my husband had lots and lots of relapses even when even you know after he recognized that okay, I want to get well. And then we decided to partner up together as he um, sought recovery. And I still saw relapses, but at least I got to the acceptance on my end okay, this is not going to be a one-and-done deal. He's going to continue to have a lots of relapses. Um, he's got to, you know, he had to change everything, learn new tools, learn how not to pick up the drink um, and do something instead. Um, he had to, I think you mentioned he had to change not some things, but everything.
0: Yeah, complete change of lifestyle. Complete change of lifestyle.
1: Yeah. And I think that on my end, um, you know, like I was mentioning before, I, I came not knowing anything about alcohol or addiction to learning about it through Al Anon and then having this internal struggle within myself of this choice versus disease. And for me, when, when I kept trying um, to force, you know, for solutions that it was only when I really, truly understood the magnitude of the disease and how the alcoholic or the addict is literally, um, what do you call it? Just in the throes mm-hmm. of it. And so what's that pithy comment we were talking about earlier? It's,
0: yeah, I don't remember what the pithy comment was. It It's just, you know, but what you're getting at is that we don't ask you to change much. We just expect you to change everything.
1: Yeah, and so I think that from the family member's perspective, um, it just, it's just really frustrating. And you're living with this person day in, day out. You see how they're ruining their lives. They're affecting their family. They're losing touch with their children, if they have children, they're um, you know potentially getting DUIs, potentially losing their jobs, and all the while the family members seeing this, and especially if they're not working and they're reliant on that on that person, um, it's very scary. And um, in my particular case, um, I I went back to work um, because I wasn't sure if my alcoholic would would get better so then i was thinking okay worst case scenario he dies and then i've got two kids so i've got to go back to work in order to be able to assist, you know provide food and and money for my family so those fears are going through my head and then and then just concern also with the alcoholic himself you know is he going to die um is he going to have a job is he going to hurt anyone? Is he going to get a DUI? Is he going to kill somebody? I mean, the family member is the one that has to deal with that. And so I did get professional counseling along with support groups for Al-Anon. Um, I did reach out to people. But, you know, despite all of that, um, that was good that I had all that. But there were moments that I would just feel so devastated, so lonely, so abandoned. Um, as my loved one was going through his addiction.
0: Well, I think part of it, what I have seen in working with family members, and I don't know if this applied to you, but I know a lot of the men that I have worked with over the years, uh, very few, if any, actually I'm trying to think if there have been any, where their loved one, their spouse, in and, and the case of the men that I work with, their wives, very few, of the wives actually supported their recovery. And it was a weird thing because on one hand, they desperately wanted their husband to get well. They wanted them to get sober, but they didn't want to hear about any about AA. They didn't want to hear about any other program. And, And by the way, folks, I do want to say there are other programs out there. But for these particular men, it was AA. So on the one hand, their loved one wanted them to get well, but they didn't want to be involved. In their recovery, they didn't want to know about, know about AA. They didn't want to know about anything that they were doing. They didn't want to know about meetings, but they wanted them to get well. And it was weird. You know, the weird thing about addiction that I have found over the years is this is the disease that everybody has an opinion about, right? On the causes of it, why it continues, um, and then finally how people should get well. But very few, if any, of the people that you talk to have any experience with this. They've never had to get sober. They don't know anybody that's gotten sober. And they have all these programs. Like, for example, AA. I've never seen a program where so many people in the country have an opinion about AA, but yet they've never been to a meeting. They've never read the big book. They don't know anything about it, but yet they have strong opinions on it. And I think that that's a shame because right at the moment that people need the help, the people that are around them that should be helping them aren't helping them. And I think what differentiates your situation from a lot of the people that I have worked with uh, is that you seem to really work. You worked hard on understanding the problem. And then when your loved one needed to get well, you were part of the team and you were able to point in the direction. Because I know the guys that I work with, um, it was very important for me to always be consistent in the message and always being pointing towards the solution. There is one solution. When it comes to addiction, there's one solution and there's one answer. The problem is we've watered this down and and it becomes very confusing. And if an addict can find a way out, if they can find something other than the true solution, they'll take that something else. But in your case, it seems like you were always pointing in the right direction and pointing uh, towards the answer. Ultimately, it worked. It took a long time, but but it worked ultimately, it sounds like.
1: Well, I think that in my particular case, you know, I was one of these, you know, spouses where I was involved. And, and I was desperately trying to create bottoms for my husband so that he would get better. But really, in my particular case, what ended up happening was, I really needed to back off. Um, I needed to allow him To be able to find his own way. Because if he wanted a recovery. He had to be the one to do the work. So I eventually learned to step back. To to stop making bottoms. And then work my own program. And if it was. You know. If it was meant to be for him to get well. He would get well. So that's why I was preparing to go to work. And try to do things to get myself. um, In a situation where I could take care of the kids. If something happened to him. Mm -hmm. That's what I did but I've known other people where it was the opposite like you had mentioned they didn't want to get involved they 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 just wanted to be done to the point where they've left their husbands or Mm -hmm. wives right they they turned the other way Um, and then maybe later on as their spouse maybe turned towards recovery then they developed that relationship or some just stay out forever. So, you know, I want to talk, to, uh, you know, address what you had said about um, uh, when you had talked about, um, you know, we were going back about pithy comments. Mm-hmm. And I remember what it was. Uh, we talked about um, it's a disease that tells you that you don't have a disease. Right, yeah. right. So I hear that statement. It, it, I said, I mentioned that I thought it was pithy because from a family member's perspective, hearing that doesn't necessarily give me any solace because it's kind of like well it's a disease that tells you you don't have a disease I'm like so what what does that how does that help me as a family member where I'm seeing my husband you know pass out on the floor and I'm wondering is he dead or alive and or he was supposed to be at a function with me but he's in bed totally drunk And I'm left having to drive the kids and he's incapacitated the whole weekend. So then I'm all alone playing chauffeur and I have a third child basically sleeping in the bed. So that's, you know, so it's, yeah, I I intuitively hear it, but accepting that and realizing, you I, I had not made the transition yet to say, if my husband had cancer and he had gone through chemo and he's laying on the bed and he's super sick, could I equate that to, okay, he's a drunk. He can't stop himself from picking up a drink. He's passed down on the bed. I don't think that I would have been angry at him if he had cancer, but I'm sure angry at him because he's an alcoholic and he's passed down on the bed. You know, I I hadn't made that transition Mm -hmm. where I equated alcoholism or addiction as a disease and put it on the same level as cancer. It was only when after years and years and years of him struggling and years and years of me banging my head against the wall, where I was able to say, it's, it's pretty similar. It really is similar. Just like if, if my husband had cancer and he refused to get treatment and get cancer, you know, and get chemo or radiation, he's going to die. Um, and I'm sure there's families out there, Mike, who, who have cancer, and then maybe the family members do choose not to get any help. And they do die. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do. And they do, right? Yeah. So so there's a lot more similarities between the diseases, and I only say cancer, because you, you have to get treatment to put it into remission. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a diabetic, you have to change your eating, or you have to get insulin into your body in order to get better. The addict and the alcoholic has to do certain things in order to put their disease in remission. Mm-hmm. And the family members you know, are, are there to support them, but we have to go through our own um, trials and, and um, tribulations in terms of accepting that the person that we're with is sick.
0: So, you raise a good point, because a lot of people question the comparison between cancer and diabetes in, in addiction, And where I'm going, I'm going to talk about the similarities between the two. And I'm going to talk about the the differences, right? Because when you explain it, I think it helps people understand this a bit more. When we talk about alcoholism or addiction as being a disease, it is a disease. By the way, when you go to a hospital... For those of you that are taking your loved ones to the hospitals, your doctor and nurse is not going to lecture you on your moral behavior. They're not, they're not going to say, hey, stop doing that because you're a, bad, you know, you're a bad person. Good people don't do things like that. What they are going to tell you is that you have a very serious disease. So the medical community looks at this as being a disease. But what do we mean by that? What we mean is that it is a physical and it's a mental disease. Now listen very closely to what I just said. It is a physical, meaning there's a physical predisposition, and your body uh, becomes uh, physiologically addicted to the substance, right? We know that if you withdraw off of alcohol, you can die from that. Your body has an adverse reaction to it. That's a physiological response. That's the physical side. But then the mental side is your body tells you, your brain, rather, tells you that not only is your drinking, your drugging, not a bad thing, but it's a good thing. That's why alcoholics drink until they're out of alcohol or they pass out whereas a non-alcohol will stop at a certain point meaning they'll they'll stop drinking they'll throw up their body will reject it but if you ever wonder why an alcoholic can drink enormous amounts of alcohol without throwing it up and without without stopping it's because physiologically their body does not have that adverse reaction and their brain, is miswired to say that not only is alcohol a good thing, but drinking a lot more is a really good thing. It's a miswiring, okay? So it's a mental and physical. It's combined, be, you know, so the, the two are there. So I know AA has a lot of really pithy one-line, you know, one-line sayings. If you've never been to an AA meeting, it is just, it's amazing how many one-lines come out of uh, AA. In fact, I'll, I'll do a podcast some day talking about some of of my favorites because I actually like them. But I like how this one here where it says alcoholism is the disease or addiction rather is the disease that tells you that you don't have it. And and that's because the brain actually tells the, the addict that this is not a problem to the point where they actually don't see what you see. They don't see what you see. You're like dude, your life is falling apart, you're losing your family, you're losing your job, and then you will see somebody continue to drink and destroy their life. And in fact, I I talk to lots of people that say, I was actually happy when my wife left me or she put me in a hotel room because that meant that I could drink with nobody disturbing me, right? And you hear that over and over and over when you're at meetings. That clearly is someone that does not see what everybody around them sees, and that's what we mean. It's the addiction that tells you that you don't have it. And then later, when you get into recovery and you relapse, again, your brain tells you that this is not going to be a bad thing, and you forget. You actually forget. Your brain does not allow you to see what happened before right? And that's why there, another one of the famous lines in AA is just, before you take that drink, play the movie to the end. Play that movie out and look at the end and see how... It, play, watch the end first before you pick up that first drink. It's because it, it's almost like the um, you know, Men in Black, if you've ever seen that movie, where they, they do what they do and then they come out with that machine and they zap you and it erases your memory. That's kind of what this is. It erases your memory and you forgot about all those things that, um, that happened before. And if you don't believe me, just go to, go to AA meetings, be around a bunch of addicts and alcoholics, and listen to them talk, and you will hear what I am talking about over and over and over again, and you'll be convinced it is the disease that tells you that you do not have it. So when you're dealing with your loved one, I think, you know, you have to keep that in mind. The behavior is frustrating, it's angering, uh, you know, you'll want to leave... But understand, this is not because this person doesn't love you. They actually just don't see what you see. Does that make sense? And was that your experience?
1: Yeah, I think that um, there was. I, I know of a of a scenario where my husband had asked me um, when when we were partnering up together, as he was um, wanted to get to stay um, sober. So he had asked me, "Can you?" Can you keep my keys? I said okay. So, so we live really close to a giant, and they normally close around eleven o'clock at night. A,
0: a giant is a supermarket. If you don't live in this oh, okay, area, sorry. yeah, a giant is uh, a local supermarket. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So he had um, given me the keys, and then the craving came up, and so he had asked for the keys, and then I said no. You you had asked me to to keep them. So he's literally chasing after me around the house around his car in order to be able to get those keys so i gave in and then i drove him uh to the to the giant's um grocery store so we get there and then i'm i'm quiet or i'm just under my breath saying you know why did why did i even ask you know allow you to tell me to do this i mean so so we're we're at the supermarket, and now we're in front of the where the wine is, and I'm standing between he and his favorite wine, and what does he do? He says, "Step aside," <laughs> and um and I could see this crazed look in his eyes, like a glassy look of just intent, and um and I I had not seen that look, but it was like a hungry look. And so I could tell that it was was almost like he was possessed. So then I, I stepped aside, and then he got his favorite wine. And then, you know, I'm walking behind him as he went and bought it. And then I brought him home, and I said, don't you ever, don't you ever ask me to do that again. But that was the very, very first time that it started to sink in, that the alcohol had a major grip on him and... And, you know, it just possessed him, really. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt.
0: Possessed. You know what? I want to address that a little bit because you you raise a very, very interesting point. But before we do, let me just uh, talk about our sponsor one more time. This episode is sponsored by FHE Health. FHE Health has been providing life-changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized and comprehensive approach. Recognizing the specialized treatment needs of the first responder community, they've created Shatterproof, a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. They're experienced in providing privacy and working with unions for employment. FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for our patients, for their families, and for our community. So learn more at FHEHealth.com. So you mentioned it was almost like your husband was possessed. And I remember having sort of this epiphany, this thought once about that, because I know in my own experience, I have described it, I know when I, I taught the class down on addiction down at the FBI Academy, I would talk to the students about this, that it was almost like a, a possession. You talk about that. And not to get you know too freaky with people, but almost like a demonic possession, and I know in my case when you know I could I could have all the resolve I wanted during the day. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. And then there was just a certain point in the day, usually in my case in the evening, where it was almost like the horses would just, you know, you could hear them coming up behind you and then boom, they would just overtake you and then, and there was no power. There was no power to overtake it. And and everybody that suffers from addiction will tell you that that same feeling. It was almost like another person was talking to you and making you do something you didn't want to do. And so it made me think that it's interesting when you think of how people talk about addiction and I'll I'll talk about the bottle here for a second. I mean, listen to these terms, you know, maybe, maybe our listeners have heard this, you love me or you love the bottle rather more than me. That bottle is your bride. You'd rather sleep with that bottle than with me. Um, I've heard people when they give up drinking, they describe their drinking as though ending their drinking like it was a divorce. Now that's interesting because you divorce a person. You don't divorce an inanimate object. You divorce a person. I've heard people say it was like a broken relationship. It was, they felt lonely. They felt isolated, right? Well, you feel isolated from people. You hear all these terms, and it's interesting because people talk about their addiction as though it's a person, right? And then it made me think even more that when you go by liquor stores or wine stores, oftentimes you'll see what? You'll see um, so-and-so's wine and spirits. You ever wonder about that? Wine and spirits. Alcohol has been given the term Spirits, right? But a spirit is a living entity. A spirit's not an inanimate object. It's a it's a living thing. And I've always wondered about that association. This is the only thing that we have in our life where we feel that this object, this thing that we put into our body, is almost like a living person. On a previous podcast, I talked about how I was involved in a pretty serious cycling accident in 2016. And I remember, and this is probably six or so years into um, uh, however many years it was into recovery. So I had some recovery behind me, and I get into this bike accident, and the paramedics and the ambulance started talking about giving me morphine. And I remember, after those years of recovery, my reaction to that, where the addiction kicked in. And it was almost like a person step, was sitting on my shoulder saying, Oh, right. This is going to be great we can party tonight here i was half my body was broken and i wasn't even thinking about all the damage that was done to my body all i could think about was what a good time i was going to have in the hospital tonight but it was uncontrollable it was something that that just took over almost like a person took over right and i've always thought that that was just a very uh strange relationship but it's a very unique relationship that addiction has with a person that you really don't see anywhere else in any other relationship. What do you think of that?
1: Well, you and I had talked about earlier about how addiction uh, is a very complex disease. It is. We tend to oversimplify it. And so I know that you gave an earlier um, episode about um, the five year cycle so mm-hmm. I actually listened to that one but I, I think that even beyond the five years
0: five year cycle of recovery
1: yeah. of, of recovery but mm-hmm. we also had talked about you know take those five years and address it from what is alcoholism and addiction it's it's physical, it's psychological, it's emotional it's um, I can't spiritual. remember spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's,
0: and we, then the fifth year would be you being able to incorporate all of those those other mm-hmm. four aspects that you just mentioned. Because I, I submit that prior to that, at least in my own case, I was focused on each one of those: the physical, the spiritual, the psychological, the, the emotional, um, individually in individual years. And then by the fifth year, I was able to interweave those other four.
1: So, you, so you just said over a four-year period. Mm-hmm. You worked on those four things individually. Individually, and in the fifth year you entwined all of yeah, them. It was like
0: it was like I was able to go. Oh, I, I get how they all work together.
1: So if you're mm-hmm. an addict and you're an alcoholic and you're in your you're not even in your first year and you're still battling addiction,
0: the physical part,
1: the physical part, mm-hmm. but but you're still deficient when it comes to the psychological, spiritual, emotional. Mm-hmm. So. An addict and an alcoholic has to deal with all of that. So, for them to go over that hump to even get to the physical point—I'm sorry—they're still missing, they're still deficient in all the other things. Mm-hmm. And so, that's
0: why that first year is very hard. Well, no, that's, you really don't have all those tools yet.
1: Well, no, that's what I'm saying though. I—I I think that for me, being the family member, you know, I would think, you know, just choose to get sober not really realizing the complexity and how difficult it would be for my alcoholic to get well
0: well you know that you raise a good point and that's why I, a lot of folks that i work with are very upset when they send their loved one off to let's say a 28 day treatment uh, or a detox and those of you that have not been to treatment before you know 28 day is the standard in the united states that you you go off um uh, you know, so 28 days you go off to a program and then you come back and a lot of family members think, oh, Joe, I sent Joe off to treatment. He's fixed now. Okay. And then they come back and then they, they start drinking again and people are confused. They're like, I thought he was fixed. He went off for his 28 day treatment. Why is he drinking now? And I think what you're talking about addresses why that is, because 28 days is not enough. By the way, you guys do understand that there really is no scientific evidence that, that says that 28 day, that this model that we use in the United States is effective. There is no evidence that supports that. And that's a that's a big item for discussion in the recovery community right now. But that is the, the standard. A lot of it has to do with in what will insurance companies pay for. That, that it's really more driven by the business end than anything else. But I think what people expect is they go off and they're fixed. You understand there's no being fixed with addiction, right? So that's what you're talking about. And what you just described in that five-year cycle, that's a long cycle, right? So people go off for 28 days, but you're talking five years before people even really have that light bulb come on and say, oh, I understand this whole addiction piece, right? It's very complex, very complex.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that as a family member, um, I thought it would be a quick fix. I thought my husband would go out for 28 days, never really thinking how to do with the insurance companies, but that all would be well. But then as I learned more about the disease and especially, you know, continuing to live with him all those years as he was battling addiction and, and really struggling to get into recovery, um, I learned that, um, number one, it was it was going to be a slow process. I had to accept that it was going to be, you know, a long haul process and that, um, that it would take time. And, you know, looking back on it, it was, you know, it was, a it was a very hard struggle for him.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if somebody is in your situation right now, what do you think are the key takeaway learning points? If you, if you could go back and do something different or multiple things differently now based on what you know all these years later, what would you do differently?
1: You know, Mike, that's a really tough question because um, I do a lot of work and I, uh, before COVID, I volunteered at a local treatment center and I would um, talk to the patients and uh, to talk, you know, talk to them and their family members. It was family night. And so the patients would be there And the family members would be there and we would talk about Al-Anon and I would talk, I would tell my story and then share with everybody um, what brought me to Al-Anon and why do I continue to go? And there was a patient in that room. Um, I don't remember if there were any family members at all, but the patient said to me, you know, if you had done anything differently, do you think that your husband would have gotten into recovery earlier? So I was dumbfounded. I couldn't even speak. And so luckily they always have a professional counselor that's there. And he stepped in and he basically said to the patient, Lily did the best that she could at the time. And then we don't know what you knew. Right. And we don't know if her husband would have gotten better if she had done anything differently. And so, you know, I I don't know if I would have done anything differently. I um, I really did the best I could based on what I knew, and I had to forgive myself for the things that I, you know, like calling the place or um, that that didn't help when I did that because I did that not because he was doing anything. I I did that to create a bottom, mm-hmm. so I I did apologize for that because that.
0: But in fairness, you had told me in a previous discussion, maybe even the last podcast that we did together, that you actually had received that advice from somebody that you you didn't make that in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. There was somebody that gave you poor advice and that somebody should have known better about that.
1: Well, I don't know if they would have known better. I think that they were trying to help me. They were trying. Trying to get my husband into recovery. So, you know, you talk about uh, earlier about there's a lot of miscommunication out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, there is. but then what works for me may not necessarily work for somebody else. Um, I think that family members live with a lot of guilt, and um, and we need to forgive ourselves. And um, you know, we could be really hard on ourselves because um, you know, thinking that we have all the answers because we're the ones that are sober. But what works for one person may not work for another, and. And there is a lot of misinformation out there, but I think that number one, what are the things that I would recommend people do? Number one, if you're not, you know, if you don't know anything about the disease, you need to read about it. Number two, there are professional counselors out there that deal with addiction that understand that this is a disease. Number three, if you need a support group, there's AA, there's, um, I mean, there's, well, I even used to go to open AA meetings. Um, There's Al-Anon. There's a number of other support groups that are out there that help people in a group setting, help to deal with it. Um, And then you have to take care of yourself. Um, You know, I don't know if I mentioned in here, but, you know, when you're flying along and then the, you know, you lose pressure and then the masks come down, they say, put it on yourself first before you put it on your children. You have to do that. I, I got to the point where I was just nothing because I was putting everything into my husband and I was just a zombie just doing the day-to-day things to take care of my kids. But I learned that I, if I wasn't well, I would be of no use to my husband or my children. So you have to learn to take good care of yourself mm-hmm. um, and then just continue to learn and then just have grace upon yourself because this is this is this disease ravages you it ravages the alcoholic it ravages the family members um now i wish that there was more research you know the amount of money that's put towards cancer i wish there was more money put towards addiction now with the opioid pandemic and epidemic you know hopefully that will bring more money Uh, especially as you're studying that arena. But hopefully it trails over to alcoholism as well. But we definitely need more research in this area. And then that way you clear up some of these um, misinformation out there if if we had better research.
0: But what we do know that is clear, and I know that I have friends in Europe that talk about how they look at addiction, and over there they... In Europe, they're very much into the, um, they're not completely convinced that abstinence is the answer. You know, they, they're they into the harm reduction model, meaning we just want to use you, have you use less of whatever drug you're using. What we do know, what we do know is that abstinence works. And you cannot, if you are somebody that is has gone to an AA meeting, has gone to detox, has gone to a 28 or longer treatment facility, you really have no business using drugs or alcohol. And that is the answer. And one thing I'll address in the conflicting messages out there in society is this. I'm 100% sure of this. There is no debating this one. 100% abstinence works 100% of the time. And if you have ended up in a position where you've needed treatment for drugs or alcohol, To think that you can experiment or reduce or get into long-term harm reduction is a really bad idea. That we do know. And if you have a loved one that is in the category that we're talking about, that has to be the direction that you're pointing towards. Not drinking less, not taking vacation, not moving, not getting a new job. The problem that you have is you need to stop using whatever you are using. And you cannot separate. Uh, You cannot substitute one mind-altering substance with another. For example, you can't stop drinking and smoke marijuana all day long. You can't stop using heroin but take up drinking. Addiction is addiction is addiction, and you just need to stop using anything that's out there. And, And if you have to have an operation like I did, you do that very carefully, and you do it under supervision, and you do it with a lot of help, from the people that you've met in whatever recovery program that you are in, and you have that team that Lily was talking about around you, with people that have studied this and know what they're talking about, um, would you agree with that?
1: I do, and I, I think that, um, you know, I think it's important. It's important to have a family. I mean, a network that supports you. I definitely believe that in my husband's case that he would not be sober today if it wasn't for the support of the medical profession it mm-hmm. is a disease after all right mm-hmm. of the medical profession with the support of his family with the support of aa and the people that he's met in the program it's it's a complex disease i i think it's because we tend to oversimplify it that's that's what's causing our problems mm-hmm.
0: it is very complex like you said physical Emotional, psychological, and spiritual. All of those areas are involved in addiction. It is very complex. And it's a lot of work. You're never fully recovered, meaning ED, meaning in the past tense. Recovery is an ongoing project that is constantly worked on. And uh, you still support your husband today, correct? I do. Are you very much involved in... Um, not only your own recovery, but you support him and his. I mean, understand that um, recovery for you and for your husband are different programs. Everybody works their own program, but you support each other, correct? Mm-hmm. Like a team effort? How how do you support your husband now?
1: Well, I think now what I do is that, um, I mean, we work with a lot of people now. Mm-hmm. And my, my focus is on the family members and lessons learned you know, that I did and that, um, you know, I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but like I said, I did the best I could at the time, but then now what I know now, I'm able to pass that along and hopefully, um, provide hope for them that there are no guarantees that your loved one will get, will get better. Mm -hmm. There are no guarantees, but you know, if you've loved that person, um, then you're going to support them. And, and I'm not saying that you have to stay with them. Um, You know, I got to the point where if my loved one, my husband had not gotten better, um, I was seeing a professional counselor and I was feeling very alone and I felt completely abandoned. And so she she did say to me though that um, I was being abandoned and that when I was with my with my husband, he wasn't physically abusive, but I did feel emotionally abused. Um, and so she said that I didn't need it. I did not have to live with that. And so I had decided in my mind, and it wasn't a threat, that if he did not get help, then I was more than willing to put the house up for sale. Um, more than willing to separate. Um, I didn't want a divorce. But it doesn't mean that I needed to be under the same household, under the same roof, because I didn't want the children to be exposed to that kind of behavior, especially when he was still in the throes of his addiction. Um, and, but then in my particular case, it just so happened that he um, sought help, and then he um, he got into long-term recovery, so we never had to do that. But I was more than prepared to do that. I, I think like when we talk about self care, the family member has to decide what is best for themselves and their children. And it's certainly if they're in, in a physical, um, you know, situation where they're they can suffer bodily harm, they they need to remove themselves mm-hmm. and and seek shelter. Um, and then if if there's other, you know, emotional abuse or. You know, where they're not being Certainly cared, physical abuse. Certainly you know. physical. Um, but even on the emotional side, um, I didn't feel safe. And so um, I didn't like the yelling and the screaming. It wasn't good for the children. Um, but I, I think that once my husband got into long-term recovery and that uh, we actually, um, probably early on, maybe six months when he was in recovery, we went to a counselor. And then we learned couples... Dialogue, you know, learning how to communicate because now he's sober and um, learning new skills of how to communicate as a couple where he was always drunk. So now, how do you communicate with a sober husband who's never learned to communicate with you because either he's always been passed out? So we as a couple had to learn new skills of how to communicate with one another. So there was a process where we had to learn learn to communicate better.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Any uh, final thoughts before we wrap up?
1: So I'd say, like I was mentioning earlier, Mike, I, I think that um, um, addiction is a very complex disease, like you mentioned. I think that um, the family members are significantly affected. It's important for them to take care of themselves. It's important for them also to get help, whether it's support groups, professional um, counselor, a support network for themselves as well, um, and get educated about it. There is a lot of misinformation about And for me, the best information that I was able to get was through treatment centers. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, treatment centers, there is a lot of information that's out there, and if you've not had a chance, if you're a listener of this program and you've not had a chance to check out our website at Solutions.com we try to put information on there that we think is helpful, things that have helped uh, us along the way. Uh, check that out because uh, there's videos, there's articles, there's uh, links, all sorts of resources that we're placing on that website. Are there any anything off the top of your head that uh, you would suggest, maybe reading material, anything that helped you in particular? There is a book once I remember talking to you about and I've read it actually it's really good too it's called Under the Influence that's a very very good book uh, there's also another book written by Christopher Kennedy Lawford um, he's from the whole Kennedy clan if you remember the, the Kennedys um, he has a book called Recover to Live which I thought was an excellent resource um, Any any others that you can think of off the top of your head that would be a good resource. Of course, all of the uh, AA, Al-Anon literature that's out there um, uh, would be helpful as well. So, any any other thoughts that you want to impart? So, all right, folks. Well, thank you very much, Lily. Thank you for being on the Thanks. show. Thanks for having me. And once again, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. According to H- SAMHSA, first responders are thirty percent more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out once more uh, at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. And so i like to say I don't represent any group. I know we talk about AA and Al-Anon quite a bit on the show, but you know do keep in mind we don't represent AA. That there are other groups out there that you can tap into and in other resources. Um, we're just talking about uh, programs that we've worked with, and if there's anything that we've said that you don't agree with, then just discard it, but try to use something that we've said to help you and your love your loved one today, because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way while we're helping others, and we try to do that through imparting knowledge that we've gained along the way. So, with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery Is Possible, and our website once again is Van Meter Wellness Solutions. Dot com. Let me know how I'm doing and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing. You know, today's topic was something that has been brought up from lit- listeners that have been writing to me and, and telling me about issues that they've had. So would love discuss to discuss any information or any issue that you want more information on. And so, guys, with that, take care and we'll see you next time.